What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hartness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Marie Dubost, and we speak about accessibility in online workshops and how can we make sure that the sessions we are designing are accessible for everyone to attend. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back and be ready to be inspired. And I have another question, if I may. <laughs> I'm here to ask questions anyway. Sure, sure. When it comes to language and wording. So mm -hmm. I constantly have the impression that I have to watch out how I would speak out or name participants with disabilities. Are they called disabilities or are they impaired persons or are they? So to what extent I'm overthinking it? And I think it might be different in the US than in Europe from my understanding. Mm -hmm. And the second is how careful do we have to be then with our general instructions? Because I must admit that sometimes when a facilitator said, please get up off your chair, if you're able to do that, if you, if you can do that, please roll up your sleeves. Mm. And at some point I thought, okay, it's just too many words for very simple instructions. Is this very necessary? I think that's a very good question. I'm going to give you the kind of like the short kind of like, these are the suggestions of like the kind of wording that you can use. And also like maybe a slightly longer explanation because it's very exciting, Miriam. There's like a cultural shift also around the way the disability co disability community itself is using language um, about themselves. So it's a constantly evolving topic. And again, if you ask me again in three years, maybe I will give you something slightly different. Um, the short quick answer is, You want to either talk about people with disabilities or disabled people, the first one being what we call person-first language and the other one being identity-first language. There's a bit of a debate in the community whether we should use one or the other, but I would consider that both are fine in the sense that they're, none of them are offensive per se. Using the term impairment, some people have an issue with the term impairment because it, it sounds like you know, you're saying that they're not functioning to the level that non-disabled people are. But then you can use the word condition if you don't mind, because condition is fairly neutral and it just alludes to like a medical state, perhaps. What you want to avoid is a language that applies a label like, you know, people with uh, this kind of problem or people with um, suffering from, you don't know that they're suffering. You know? So that's also like very much a value judgment that a non-disabled person would apply to someone that they think is suffering because They think, well, if I were me, obviously I would be suffering. This person may be living their, you know, their best life and we still think they're suffering somehow. So you want to avoid language like this. And I think, for example, if you were to give the instruction, you know, please get up from your chair if it is possible for you or if you're able to, is a perfectly fine way to phrase it and then move on to the rest. The people who are not able to get up from their chair will know that this was, you know, meant from that for them. Maybe my one only other like small recommendation for facilitators and just the population in general, we don't need to shy away from the term disability. The community itself is not offended when we talk about a disability. We're thinking about it in terms of it's the product of the person interacting with an environment. 
right? So they're not disabled by their condition. They're disabled by the fact that if you want to access this building, it's not accessible to you. Or maybe sometimes it's that the mentalities are not making a space accessible for you. What we want to avoid are the terms that kind of like sidestep the disability and don't really name it like um, differently abled, handicapable. I see these terms sometimes. I know it's more like US. And it's not just very infantilizing because I've almost never heard these terms applied to like, you know, an adult who was being treated as an adult. But they're kind of like avoiding the whole like discrimination thing. They're making it sound like, oh, you know, we all have different abilities. Well, yeah, we all have different abilities, but there is a community that has been, you know, discriminated against for hundreds of years. And we still have around us the architectural, you know, consequences of that. So, you know, using these kind of like terms that kind of like hide the, you know, it sounds like these terms are created to make non-disabled people feel comfortable, uh, but they're not naming the problem, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the problem is the exclusion or the problem is that the environment is not accessible. So the problem is not with the person and their condition. As long as you use terms that you don't use a value judgment, generally it goes quite well. If ever you're not sure and you're referring to a specific group, for example, you're not sure how deaf people prefer to be referred to, or you're not sure how autistic people prefer to be referred to, you can go on the website of a disabled person organization. You know, there's like for most disability, there is a national like entity or like there's like a, or maybe even an international representation. And you can see what kind of language they use about themselves. Sometimes even they themselves will say, well, for example, autistic people prefer identity first language. They prefer autistic person rather than person with autism. Generally speaking, especially the young people. And it's also part of a movement of saying, you know, my disability is part of my identity. We don't separate it from me, but we understand that it is one of the many facets that make me, right? And that's the the way to look at it. It's a really long explanation. I don't expect it to make it all to the podcast, but I've basically then explained. Um, I think it's a very important. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very important. And thank you for taking the time to uh, walk me on behalf of the audience through that. And I wonder whether what you shared last about autistic persons that they prefer to be named as such that it's part of their identity, whether this is because it's a cognitive situation I, and therefore part of the personality because they process information and therefore interact with the environment on a communicative level. I think you're, yeah, th there is part of that. It's that it affects the way my brain functions. Therefore, it is part of me. I think sometimes groups, for example, groups of people who have a physical impairment, they might prefer to say, I am a person with spina bifida, for example, because they kind of like separate in the, in a way there's my brain and then there's my body, but you know, there's like my brain, my soul, my body. And mm -hmm. in, in a way, my body is not who I am and my personality. Whereas for autistic people, I mean, I have ADHD. It's hundred percent part of like you know, how crazy obsessed I am with this with accessibility. <laughs> it, it's part of what makes my personality what it is. It would be very difficult for me to, to try to separate it from my identity because it, it really shapes the way I look at things, the way I communicate. The I mean, it shapes the opportunities I have in this world or the ones maybe I have less of, but it shapes the way what makes me unique. And so it's true that 
for disabilities that are usually thought to be like maybe more shaping how the brain works. Maybe it's easier for people to say, well, actually, this is 100% part of me. It's not a part of me that I reject. And a lot of autistic people will tell you, like, I'm proud to be autistic. Like, there's no, there's 0% of that that I reject or that I wish were different. Yeah. Thank you. And there are two more, two more big topics that um, I'm especially curious about. One may be a deep dive since you also mentioned it, that you have ADHD. And I think this is a condition that more and more get diagnosed with or mm -hmm. realize and or have, have the impression that they're affected. So maybe how can we as facilitators and workshop designers accommodate this particular issue? Because it has, I always say in a workshop, I'm asking for the two most important resources of someone, which is time and attention. So mm -hmm. if there's an attention disorder, naturally, how can I accommodate for that and make it easier? How can I facilitate attention? So that's one question. And the other question is, what would be your advice to us as fellow participants when it comes to accessibility and, yeah, fellow participants with special needs? Can I say that? Oh, God, I'm, I'm in the trap again. It's, I don't really like special needs, but I say access needs or accessibility Ex needs. Accessibility um, needs. But, yeah. yeah. But or, it's not... It's, it's, specific it's not, it's not yeah. the worst. Like there's, uh, there's definitely things that make me cringe. But uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> please let me know. Um, so with accessibility needs or just a different way to process information. So first right. ADHD and then us as participants. Sure. So I should probably mention that ADHD does manifest itself in different ways, and for some people, or sometimes it can be, uh, you know, in in a difficulty to to focus, but sometimes it can also be hyper focus which is like, um, <laughs> which is when it's two in the morning and I'm still working on something because I completely ignored my biological needs and I just like transfixed by something and I have to finish it and I have to do it now. And I, I didn't even see this time go by and it's been four hours. I haven't fed myself. I haven't been to the bathroom. I really need to take care of my sleep. So attention does not always mean like, oh, squirrel, I get distracted, something shiny over there. But it can also mean, a tendency also to like really dig deep into topics of interest where you actually have trouble kind of like pulling yourself out and taking care of like bio biological needs. So for example, when you design the session, it's useful for me to know if there's going to be a break in the middle, because essentially you're, you're forcing me to take care of myself. I also realized that for people who have, a lot of people have ADHD and anxiety And if you have anxiety, you like to know what is coming next, right? Like I mentioned earlier, you like to know that there's going to be more stuff. But also if you have ADHD, you sometimes have a difficulty to focus on the task that is after the next one. So you can only focus on what's ahead of you. And it's just like, I need to focus on this thing now. I will think about the next steps later because I can only put my, all my attention here. So I realize what I'm saying is very contradictory. Tell us what is coming, but actually don't because it could distract me. So. I think it can be helpful when you design a session to just give people instructions one thing at a time. I think most facilitators do this. Most facilitators are trained to just give people a little bite, a little activity, and don't anticipate by telling them what the next activity after that one will be, because then their brain is already going to that. Mm. So just give them the instruction for this activity. And once the time is over, you'll give them the 
next instructions. And to some people, this may be frustrating because they wish they knew, but for some people, it really helps with the focus and also reducing the overwhelm. I'm only dealing with one thing right now, and that's all I can handle anyway. What can other participants do? Again, I think whenever we grow the awareness of these different kinds of access needs or disabilities or impairments, we are hopefully raising the empathy among fellow participants to be like, oh, so I understand that maybe it's annoying to me that the presenter is spending so much time explaining what this graph is because I can see it fine. But, you know, once you understand why they are doing that, then you can be like, okay, it's true. We are taking a bit of extra time to explain how the automated captions work and how you can hide them and how you can move them around. You can even make them bigger on Zoom. So if you also have a visual and hearing impairment, you could actually have like really big text and be able to follow uh, very well. So having some empathy for understanding that maybe the startup phase of workshop may be a bit slower because you're covering a lot of like accessibility, sort of like mitigation measures, like we're going to have this, we're going to have that and so on. I think having patience and having some, giving people a bit of grace, right? So if you're in a breakout room with somebody who like someone is just like not interacting a lot, just try not to apply judgment. They might be going through a really, like I said, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And maybe it's just like really not their day today. And it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the workshop. Just the same level of, you know, patience and empathy you would hopefully show to other people just understand that it could have to do something with like that or not but i think increasing awareness that sometimes it does slow down a little bit the kick off the workshop but it brings potentially benefits to more people there is one thing i wanted to share with you i may have shared it in the pre in the pre-interview is this thing called the curb cut effect mm-hmm. is this idea that so In the 70s, these uh, people had the idea that for wheelchair users, we should make this thing where you cross the street, you go from being a pedestrian on the sidewalk or uh, the pavement, going into the zebra crossing and going back out. It would be nice if there was a little bit of a slope or a little like a mini ramp leading to the zebra crossing. And they introduced this in the US and now it's pretty much everywhere. I know in Amsterdam, in Brussels, it's everywhere, right? So most intersections have this like little mini ramp that goes into the pavement so that you don't have to take a big step down Mm -hmm. onto the road level. And this is one of those things that where you create an accessible environment that is intended to benefit disabled people. But if you have ever pushed a stroller, if you have ever carried a rolling suitcase behind you, if you've ever crossed the street while holding the hand of one or even two toddlers, you know, you will can appreciate that the step is definitely a nice thing to avoid. And so there is this effect where we create things that are beneficial for disabled people and they end up benefiting a much larger, larger group of people. There's a lot of technology like haptic technology on your phone that comes from accessibility, you know, inventions. The keyboard, okay, you can't see it because now it's blurry, but yeah. the keyboard is an invention that was originally made for uh, for blind people to be able to type. And now it's on like everybody's c- computer. There's a lot of inventions that came from the disability world that became like must-haves for many of us in our everyday life to the point where we don't even recognize it. When our phone does this thing where we're in bright sun, And so it dims, it changes the contrast so that you can now read your phone because now you have the sun in your face or whatever. Like it's really 
it's these small things. We don't notice them anymore, but a lot of these came from accessibility changes. So perhaps when we make our sessions more accessible, we are potentially uncovering something that benefits a much larger group that a lot more people would come to benefit. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's that's also my my other message to facilitators when they worry about like, is it worth it? Like, am I going to like sort of like bother the whole like flow of the meeting if I take all these precautions? Maybe so, but maybe you make it so much more comfortable for someone who is distracted or has a small child to mind while something else is going on and so on. And you're actually you're making it more accessible for them as well, because in those circumstances, it's actually really useful to them. Yeah. So I would say maybe you you uncover like you know like the the captions for like I had never thought about it for people with English as a second or third language, but that can be super useful as well. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Or with having a lot of background noise. Yeah. Exactly. You could be in a very noisy environment, and uh, yeah, this 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 allows you to 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 follow at your at your own pace. So yeah, these are these are all things that could potentially benefit many more people. So I hope that answers the questions to other facilitators who maybe still are on the fence, like, should I? Is it worth it? I think it might be. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And it really opened my eyes. And I'm especially thankful for raising the issue of how we can all benefit from more accessible workshops, because at the end of the day, don't we all suffer from overwhelm? Maybe not to a degree that it would impact us on our daily lives, but to have a little bit of reduction of potential overwhelm, I think we would all benefit from, just mm -hmm. as one example. I don't think this is like woo-woo or like kumbaya facilitation. I, I, I really do think that it it works. I've seen it and I've used it in like formal, you know, like business meetings that are definitely not of the woo-woo kumbaya <laughs> style of facilitation. No, I, I do think it helps. I also think that there's there's a number of, hopefully there's also an awareness that is growing in organizations, especially large organizations, that this is something that's worth doing. So that's that's kind of what I'm hoping to advocate for, that this becomes like a a reflex for people rather than like just not, not knowing yeah. that it's, it's yeah. there. And I think that in a very large part, it's mostly ignorance. At least that's for me. It was never bad intention or a lack of interest or effort. It was just purely, oh, I didn't even know that this could be an issue. And now knowing and knowing that there are easy ways to accommodate it. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely. I would do that. Hmm. What makes a workshop fail for you? You know, I've, I've had workshops fail, so I know about this. And I have to say, I only started calling myself a, a facilitator from 2019 because I have had some really, I have led some really lousy workshops before that. And that's when I realized like, oh, I need to learn this skill. Like clearly this is something I need. For me, what makes workshops fail is a lack of attention to the group dynamics. So not reading the room, so to speak, and not understanding what makes a truly inclusive session. For me, that that would be Like you may technically reach the objective, but you may have completely missed the mark in terms of full participation, which probably was maybe also one of the objectives there. Which is nice and then, well, would open the door to an entire different podcast episode of just because it's accessible doesn't mean it's also inclusive. So there, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously. Two sides of the self, same coin, but very different anyway. Yeah, I think it's, we were discussing this with a group of facilitators um, some weeks ago about, is it about making the the door wider? Is it about, you know, sometimes maybe you think that you don't have any disabled participants because if they don't know that you proactively communicate about how accessible your sessions are, maybe that's why they they don't join. Like people with disabilities have had many experiences of showing up to something that was supposed to be accessible and actually their participation and the experience was not great. So then, you know, when you've been burned quite a few times, you try to be very cautious of where you go and what you participate into. So I do think that there's also a work of making sure that we make sure that the door is open, really wide open, and people really can see that there's a genuine effort as making these sessions more more accessible, more inclusive for everyone, and understanding that there is a dedication that the participant experience is one of high quality and one that does not leave people, you know, with a with an unpleasant or a bitter, you know, a bitter taste or yeah. 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 Is there still something that you feel challenged about when facilitating? So I'm pretty hard on myself. So usually I have a good understanding of what my session objective is and I know when I've met it, but because I'm hard on myself and because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, I want people to leave and be like, wow, you know, like just really be wowed and amazed. And I want people to leave and really have felt like, wow, this was like quite different from what I've ever experienced. And so for me, if participants are not like elated, you know, I feel like I've somehow missed the mark when actually maybe it was just, um, it was just, you know, it was just fine. It, it reached the objective and people were happy, but I, I can be a bit hard on myself thinking that maybe my session was just a bit average. So I, I think I really want to focus on the user experience of facilitation because I, I think there is a way to get the job done. And then there's a way to get the job done and provide a delightful experience mm. that goes above and beyond. And this is what I try to to reach. And sometimes I'm frustrated because I can't quite reach it. But this is my, yeah, my number one facilitation challenge. Which is interesting because for me, it's all, after having listened to you now for almost one and a half hours, it almost feels like a catch-22 where on the one hand, you're aware of all these different perceptions of people because they perceive the world in different ways. <laughs> so it almost seems impossible to wow all of them <laughs> because yeah. each one of them you know, has a different impression of your workshop and the experience you have created in the first place. That, that is very true. It's like I said, I, I am hard on myself. I'm, I'm conscious that I'm also setting mm -hmm. very the high, the bar very high for myself. But yes, I, I want to become an exceptional facilitator, and I, I don't know that I'm there yet. But uh, I, I don't know that I'm, 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 I, I always, you know, I always hit like a, a really high grade. But I, this is what I'm working towards. Mm. How do you know that you have arrived? <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's like that Hamilton song, like never satisfied. <laughs> I don't know that I will ever think of myself there. I think, I don't know. I think this, um, you know, it, it's a double edged sword, this uh, constant strife for perfection. Yeah. But I think that's just, it's the, it's the curse I've chosen to live with. So yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much. We Thank covered so a lot much. of ground. Is there anything that you would have wanted to share that we didn't touch upon yet? 
maybe just to kind of like summarize the, well, I'll be writing a series of posts about, you know, these kind of like top five things that facilitators can do to make their sessions more accessible. I will be summarizing this because I think it's it's definitely worth sharing. I am building a hub of resources in this field. I'll share the link with you and maybe perhaps it can go into the show notes and then people yes. can find it. I think my, my key message here is that accessibility is easier when you make it part of the design from like the blueprint, like really conceptual level from the beginning. And then it becomes almost like a, like a habit. It doesn't have to be overly complex or complicated. It's not always going to be like the easiest decision. Like we've covered, there's an equilibrium and you want to figure out what is the best use of your time resources and abilities and so on. But there's definitely some measures that are within reach not going to cost you anything. Just take a little bit of your time to make your sessions more accessible. And already you can, you know, you can make a difference for quite a few people. And I think that's, that's definitely worth it. And potentially, you know, uncover some, some technique that ends up making the session more accessible to people who may not have realized that they would have needed this thing even when the, when they came in. So there's proactive stuff you can do. And then there's reactive stuff in the moment. Yeah. As long as you just, keep learning and developing this awareness, this knowledge, you, you grow your empathy and, you know, and then there's, there's no reason that you should feel like, oh, I don't know anything about that. And, and like I said, you know, even myself, I'm still learning. I'm still discovering things that I, I hadn't thought about. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's right. What about these people? (laughs) So, you know, there's never really is like a full expertise on this. I only have, I have the experience of my own conditions and things. And I have what I hear from others, but I think it's definitely worth also listening to the voices of people. I'll be working at sharing those as well, because I don't mean to be speaking on behalf of, you know, other groups necessarily, but I do mean to to advocate for that. I think it's definitely worth it. And I want to thank you for your commitment to this and for looking at how we can also make our festival also more uh, more accessible. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I will put all the links that you mentioned in the show notes and how to contact you for those who wish to have more information and to work with a, although you don't want to call yourself an expert, I can call you an expert uh, <laughs> on accessibility issues um, and would love to hire a consultant for their online events. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for staying tuned and for listening to the show. I know how busy you are and I appreciate that you're sharing your two most valuable resources with me and my guest, your time and your attention. If you're looking for more conversation with other facilitators and for a community of practice, why don't you join Never Done Before, the community that I have built and many of my podcast guests are already members. Visit neverdonebefore.org and I wish to see you there.